Hi, this is Steve. Each year, the Cinephiles puts out its annual listener survey, and one of the questions we always ask is, what episode from our early catalog would you like us to redo in our more in-depth format? And each year, I hope that you will pick our very first holiday movie and one of my favorite films of all time, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. And each year, that movie fails to garner enough votes for a redo. Well, guess what? This year, it wasn't even close. And by that, I mean It's a Wonderful Life wasn't even close to the top pick. But guess what? We're doing it anyway. You know why? Because I love this movie, and I know John loves this movie, and in the hour and 14 minutes we had to talk about it last time, we barely scratched the surface of behind-the-scenes stories, filmmaking technique, amazing performances, and most importantly, the profound meaning that film holds for both of us. So if by some miracle you haven't seen this holiday classic, take a journey to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream It's a Wonderful Life, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show at patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to a very lively discussion of foreign markets and the pressures they place on Hollywood. So that's foreign markets on Patreon and our favorite holiday film, It's a Wonderful Life, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Hello, happy holidays and welcome to The Cinephiles, where each year we jump into the world of a great holiday film and explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. And I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Uh, hold on a second, Steve. Hold on. I mean, we're talking about the holidays, for God's sakes. Uh-oh. Oh, something's happening here. Something's happening, people. Oh, we got jingle bells Merry in the Christmas, house. Merry Christmas, building alone! <laughs> yeah. So it just occurred to me as you were talking there, I've got a little bit of bells here that I could use. But yeah, um... Hi, everyone. I'm John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here on uh, the um, Cinephiles and on numerous places. And I'm very excited for us to be revisiting one of our favorite films, Steve, sure, for so many reasons, but also a film that we did, did before and that a lot of people have asked us to revisit and do the modern day Cinephiles treatment. So very excited to be jumping into this adventure with you. Me too. And let me say a little bit of how this came about. And every year we put out our listener survey, and every year we ask, which movie you would like us to redo. Yeah. And every year I hope it's It's a Wonderful Life. And every year it isn't. And guess what? This year was no exception. But here's what happened. You might notice that we still have not redone a movie in 2022. And right. here's the reason. Is that the other question that we ask is, what movie from, in this case, 2012, would you like us to, to do as our first movie from that year? And strangely enough, the movie that people most wanted us to redo and the movie from 2012 were by the same director. And Ooh. so we decided that that would be the director we do a deep dive on in the beginning of 2023. Now, I'm not going to tell you who that director is, but maybe you can figure it out by looking at our catalog and looking at yeah. the films that came out in 2012. And that will give you a sneak peek on the director. We're going to spend, let's say a couple of months exploring and spoiler alert. You guys are going to be real happy with this choice. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. 
Um, but that but anyway, meant we we're here to talk about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that meant we didn't have a movie to redo in 2022. And this is the one both you and I really, really wanted to talk about because yeah. it's one of my favorite movies of all time. John, do you remember how you first came to It's a Wonderful Life? I'm sure I was a child. I'm sure I was sitting in front of the television. I'm sure my mom and my dad were fans of the film and they introduced me to it. And I remember just it put the zap in me. When I was a young kid, it was something that I watched over and over and over again. And I lived during that time when the license for this became available to any TV station to grab and play. So I would watch it multiple times. Sometimes it would finish on one station and I would change it over and it was halfway done on another station where I lived in D.C. So I could see the film probably three or four times a day, depending on what time I catch it. Um, and I would never know when it was on. So I would just be flipping channels and boom, there it is. It's a wonderful life. So boom, I would watch it. And of course that all ended in the early nineties, but like up until that point, you could watch it wherever and whenever on any channel. And it was great. So I have always loved this movie. I own it. Every version's ever come out. I've owned, uh, and even rewatching it now in beautiful 4k, it still has the same power, still has the same effect. And it is a film that still deals with stuff that we are seeing in our films nowadays and still dealing with uh, uh, the idea of holding on to the things that you have and appreciating them rather than being um, worried about the things that you don't have or, um, you know, putting too much value in monetary things over spiritual things. So my story of how I came to the film is literally exactly the same as your story. (laughs) At some point, watching it with my family and, of course, watching it over and over again. And this is one of those weird movies where because of how it played on TV, I rarely saw it from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I almost always came in the middle because I was switching channels and, oh, there's It's a Wonderful Life. We're we're in the depression scene. We're in the dance scene. I guess I'll watch this. Um, and the other the other thing I wanted to say about this movie, because I agree with everything that you said, yeah, is this is one of the this movie I might love in the sense of like love the way you love a family member more than mm-hmm. almost any other movie I can think of, because it's not like like I've often said Lawrence of Arabia is my favorite film. T. Lawrence is not an easy guy. No, no, no. You and I both love Citizen Kane, but that doesn't yeah. mean that we love Charles Foster Kane. He's a tough guy. Most of my favorite movies, whether it's The Godfather or, you know, or John McClane and Die Hard, I sound like I want to hang out with John McClane all the time. He's a difficult guy, too. I love George Bailey, and I love yeah. this movie in a totally, totally different way. And what's great about George is that he's not, as you know, you bring out these uh, these flawed leading men, George Bailey himself, flawed in some ways, you know, snapping at the children, snapping at his wife in frustration, snapping at Uncle Billy and really unleashing this pain, grabbing Donna Reed. I don't want any plastics. I don't want to. So this is an interesting character to explore for a Christmas movie. And, uh, you know, even Capra said himself, like this film, I never knew. I never thought this film was a Christmas film. It never occurred to me to be a Christmas film. Right. What what I do remember, what I think about it now is when it, when he was being interviewed at the time is like it's my like my kid that goes off to college and became president, and it's like sure uh, I had a hand in creating that, but what it became that did it on its he did it on its own, and same thing here with this film it does it on its own. That's it. That's a great quote and a great way of looking at it. Um, speaking yeah. of Frank Capra, 
I was when we did Mr. Smith goes to Washington way back in 2016. I gave a, a bio of Frank Capra, and when we did It's a Wonderful Life, also in 2016, I gave a, a bio of Jimmy Stewart, and I went, well, I guess our fans, if they really want to hear, they go back and listen to them. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what's they're actually really interesting to talk about together. So I am going to repeat some of that bio, those bios right now. So Frank Capra emigrated to the United States from Sicily in 1903 at the age of six. And you know what occurred to me? What's that? Almost exactly the same age as Vito Corleone coming from Sicily. It's like it's like exactly the same moment. And he, you know, he's an immigrant. His family didn't have much money. He worked as a kid, worked all the way. You know, like this guy, according to his story, was working until two in the morning getting up early to go to school and then working and going to school. And like, this is the tough life. I don't have to tell you about the tough life of an immigrant family. And he dealt with a lot of racism against Italians and he dealt with, and yet this is the guy in a way who invents a certain version of America. I mean, this is John Cassavetes. Yeah. There's a John Cassavetes quote that's something like, I don't know if there ever was an America or Frank Capra just invented it. (laughs) That's a great quote. Uh, um, ironically from Cassavetes, whose version of America I, is quite brutal. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. So he joins the army to fight in World War One, but the war ends just as he gets in. He gets a degree in chemistry. He basically kind of BSs his way into movies and he becomes a gag man on silent films, including like movies like Our Gang and a gag man. You know, they weren't really written films in the same way we think of today because they're silent films. So he came up with all that comedy. That's where he developed his comedy chops. And then becomes a director at Columbia, and man, he becomes basically the biggest director in the world. He is the first director to sweep the Oscars on It Happened One Night. His title of his autobiography is the name above the title because he's one of the few directors at that time where you would see Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You, that he was the most important person involved. Jimmy Stewart is like the opposite story. (laughs) He has ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War. Oof. It's like uh, Gary Sinise in, uh, in Forrest Gump, just seeing them exactly. all die for different decades. Yeah. Um, wow. And he, all his life, he wanted to be a pilot, goes to school to study architecture and just starts acting, you know, for fun. And then yeah. goes, oh, maybe I'm going to do this. Ends up being roommates with Henry Fonda in New York when both of them are on Broadway. Wow. And Fonda gets called to Hollywood first. He comes second. And his big break is when he meets this guy. Frank Capra, who puts him in You Can't Take It With You, which is a movie I love. Mm-hmm. I, I I really love You Can't Take It With You. And I want to tell this Frank Capra story. And I did. I told this when we did Mr. Smith. But I think it's just critical to who this guy is as a filmmaker. Now, this story very well might not be true. In fact, a lot of the Frank Capra stories, not quite at the Orson Welles level, but he has a very romantic way of looking at his history and his autobiography. <laughs> and this is the story he tells. After making It Happen One Night, he's the biggest director in Hollywood. He's swept the Oscars, which no one has done before. He basically sounds like had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Completely freaked out. Went into his house. Wouldn't come out for months. Said he was sick. Thought he was dying. Just didn't. It's like, what what do I do? And this is the story he tells. Is that his wife knocks on his door and says, there's someone who wants to see you. And he goes, I'm not seeing anybody. I'm sick. You know, leave me alone. And in and she says, no, no, you have to see this person. And in walks what Capra describes as a little man in a black coat. And the little man in the black coat walks in, turns on the radio, which is playing, because this is the mid-30s, a speech mm. from Adolf Hitler. Wow. 
And so he's listening to Hitler speak and like, you know, maybe it's the Nuremberg rallies. Right. And then they listen for a while. And then the little man in the dark suit turns off the radio and looks at him and says, you have the power to speak to people for two hours in the dark. And there's nothing on earth more powerful than that. Mm. And the little man in the black suit walks out. Wow. Capra gets up and goes and makes Mr. Deeds goes to town. (laughs) Is that this is the moment where he decides I need my films to do good. And I think there is no better pairing for him than him and Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. Because you have You Can't Take It With You. Then you have the incredible Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And then, of course, you get to It's a Wonderful Life. I think the closest thing we have, modern day equivalent, would have been Spielberg and Hanks, right? I mean, that's essentially. Totally. Right, a modern day equivalent. Everybody's every man, which is Tom Hanks. And everybody's really good mainstream director and Spielberg, yeah. And one more thing about both of these men. When World War II starts, they both leave their very, very successful careers in Hollywood. Frank Capra goes to run the the military's, you know, documentary arm. And if you are interested in it, you need to look at Five Came Back, which is an incredible documentary about the Hollywood film directors. So good. Yeah. Who go off to war. Uh, And Frank Capra is the guy in charge of that, in charge of John Ford, George Stevens, William Wyler, and I think John Huston. Yeah. Are the guys that did this. Jimmy Stewart is a pilot. He wants to join the Air Force. He is too skinny. So he gets like one of the MGM trainers to help him put on like 10 pounds so he can pass the exams. And Jimmy Stewart is top to bottom, without a doubt, a real hero. You know, and it's interesting that he plays the guy that stays home and doesn't go to war, where his brother comes a pilot. Jimmy Stewart was flying B-24s. He was a commander. He ended up being uh, commanding a squadron. He ended the war as a lieutenant colonel. He got the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal. I mean, this guy was a serious, serious war hero. He flew missions in Korea. He flew Mm. missions in Vietnam as a flew um, observation planes. Mm. The guy retired from the military as a brigadier general. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. And both of them come back from World War II. And this is the first movie they make. Yeah, which had a darker edge to it, obviously. Because, well, I mean, his films, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, has a darker edge to it as well. But this one, really, this idea of people coming back from the war. Harry's a hero. You know, there's so much here that is tied to what a lot of people felt as they came back from the war. And this country was making that transition into the 1950s. Single-track housing, you know, got to get out and get a job, moving out to the suburbs and driving into the city. There's all these things that are happening. And then a little bit of darkness starts to creep in because what we didn't talk about in the 1950s and in the 1940s after World War II is PTSD. We didn't talk about how war affected people and uh, dreams and all these kinds of things of suicide, mental health issues. All that stuff started to be after Vietnam, but after every war that has happened with people coming back and I think it's um, an element of this movie that you see that it's a little bit of a darker take on Americana and what it means and um, where it leads to. And I think it ends in such a positive way, but there are some very serious uh, uh, speed bumps along the way. Well, I think the big distinction for me is that, you know, because the, the, the joke is always Capricorn. Oh, he's so corny. 
And the thing is, is like this and Mr. Smith and some of the other movies have hopeful characters and ho- and, yeah. and, and really high ideals, but the worlds they exist in are really dark. Yes. I mean, this world, and we're going to see it, gets to some real dark places. Yeah. So that's these two guys who come back from World War II. Let me tell you how this movie happened, because it started with a short story called The Greatest Gift. The guy named yeah. Philip Van Doren Stern wrote it. It's like 20 pages. Couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted to buy it. So finally, he basically self-publishes his 20-page story and sends it out to his 200 closest friends. You know? It's just like a Christmas gift. Yeah. RKO, somehow it gets to RKO, and they buy it for $10,000 to make a movie with Cary Grant. They had three scripts written for it. One of the scripts, get, check out these writers. The first script was written by Dalton Trumbo. Yeah. Yep, one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. One of the other scripts was written by Clifford Odets. Yeah, great playwright. Incredible playwright. Also, two guys that got brought up before the House on Un-American Activities Committee. Mm. So in Trumbo's version, remember, this is just a search story. So all everything being filled out happens in these scripts. In Trumbo's version, George Bailey is an idealistic politician who grows more cynical as the movie goes on and tries to commit suicide after losing an election. Whoa. And the angel shows him what his life would have been like if he had gone into business instead of going into politics. Okay. <laughs> um, another, another script had a good George getting into a fist fight with evil George. What? <laughs> One of the scripts had Uncle Billy killing himself with a gun. Oh, that I had heard about. Yes. Um, and, and Cary Grant went off to make something else and none of these movies happened. Yes. I think Cary Grant goes off to do the Bishop's wife. If I remember correctly, that's yes, it is. And finally RKO after world war II said, Hey, Frank Capra, why don't you take a look at this? And Frank Capra bought the short story from RKO for 10 grand. And they said, Hey, we'll throw in all the scripts. (laughs) So there are, I think a few bits from Clifford Odets that are in this version but mostly all that stuff got thrown out. He brings in a bunch of different writers, including Francis Goodrich, Albert Hacker, Joe Swirling, and even the great Dorothy Parker came in yeah. and did a polish. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that one's kind of crazy. Well, I mean, when you look at the darker edges of this story, you can see people like Dor- Dorothy Parker in there. You can see, um, you know, people like possibly Clifford Odets throwing some of that in there or giving some, layers to that um because they're such rich vibrant character characters throughout this movie but when we go to pottersville we really see the darkness of all of these characters and what's possible and i imagine some of these uh, writers had a very strong opinion on what could happen to these characters once they went into that dark dimension or the darkest timeline so to speak (laughs) by the way a bunch of the writers were not big fans of capra by the end of the process the WGA had to figure out how to give credits. This is something we come across before. And uh, one of the writers called Capra a horrid man, and another one called him an arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, the husband and wife team that came on left halfway through because because uh, he insulted the wife in some way. But they're the credited writers on the film, yet they're the ones who uh, did not finish out the film at all with Frank and they, uh, the story goes that the agent called and said, uh, Frank wants to know when you're done with the script. And they said, right now, we're not writing another word. And they were done with wow. the script. So, yeah. So, I mean, listen, people don't understand sometimes. I'm not excusing it, but the immigrant life, you have to fight for everything. You want it to be great. You're always afraid people are going to take things from you. 
And so sometimes that can lead you to some strong uh, opinions, some strong behaviors, uh, and it's not excusing it in any way, shape, or form. But I could understand, uh, as opposed to someone like some another director who might abuse their actors, abuse their production staff, it seemed to me like he was trying to create these films because, as you said with the story earlier, he felt that there was an importance and a weight that was being put on these films that he had a responsibility for. And so I'm not excusing his behavior, but I would not be surprised that he was a little difficult to work with because maybe he felt there was more pressure on his shoulders. I mean, I so I don't really know about a lot of what his behavior is other than the fact that he was determined to make the movie he wanted to make. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like I, I, I haven't heard. And, and again, I don't know, but I, I have certainly heard stories about a whole bunch of directors and a yeah. whole bunch of terrible things they've done on sets and done to actors and things like that. I haven't heard those stories about Frank Capra. Yeah. You know, I have heard that he was tough and determined. Yes, that's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not an asshole necessarily. But right. T- but, but the thing is, tough and determined, depending on your perspective, can definitely come off like asshole. You know, of course, of course, when it's being directed at you. Um, that's all the pre-production I have. Uh, would you like to jump into the film? Let's go. Let's jump into it. It starts. We see a bell ringing because this movie is made by Liberty Films and Liberty Films was Frank Capra's attempt to create his own independent production company with some of his fellow directors from he worked with in World War Two, George Stevens and William Wyler. And it's so funny because it, it sounds exactly like you know, Coppola, Bogdanovich and Friedkin who wanted to create their production company yeah, and so like, both, and, and none of these things work. <laughs> they, yeah. they all fail. United um, Artists is the only one that really worked right with Pickford and Fairbanks and all yeah. of them. But that's because the studio came in eventually. Studio executives came in eventually. Yep. And, kind of did their thing. and we start with a very storybook kind of uh, credit sequence. And we see a sign that says you are now in Bedford Falls. And I want to talk just a little bit about this Bedford Falls exterior set because sure. it is one of the largest exterior sets ever built. It's on the uh, what was the RKO Ranch in Encino. The set was originally used, most of it was built for the 1931 movie Cimarron, and mm. it is one of the largest exterior sets over, ever filmed. It's over 300 yards long. Yeah. It was the most expensive um set they'd ever built for the studio to do this movie so they had a lot of faith clearly steve to spend that much money on a studio on a set like this you know well what's crazy i mean before wouldn't you before world war ii capra was what? a hit maker yes yeah. you're right you're right you're right um and so it's so funny because we don't think of this as like you know a cecil b demille movie or like ben-hur or thing like that but this is a huge, huge set. There are 20 full-grown oak trees on this set. And not only not only is it a huge set, they had to do tremendous heavy lifting because it had to be a set that lasted like 30 years of history or 25 years of history. It had to be in summer and fully in winter. And it had to have a two entirely different versions because there's, in the fantasy world, the version of what happens when George didn't exist. This set does a lot of work. And it's got a good legacy. Cimarron was the, only, uh, was the first Western to win Best Picture. So... Mm. That, you know, maybe there's a little bit of, you know, feeling like this could be a possibility. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, but there's so many connections between the cast and all sorts of other things between this movie and other great films. Yeah. Um, it's just got a tremendous lineage. Um, by the way, so Seneca Falls, New York says, 
that they are the inspiration for Bedford Falls. Yes. And it's become so important to them. They have a, uh, a It's a Wonderful Life uh, festival every year in December. It's a big deal. In 2009, their new hotel opened. It's the Hotel Clarence. There's a lot of It's a Wonderful Life stuff that goes on in Seneca Falls. And Capra experts have said there is zero evidence anywhere for this claim. <laughs> never, Capra never mentioned Seneca Falls. Nobody working on the project mentioned Seneca Falls. The guy who wrote the short story based it on a city in New Jersey. So, <laughs> But I'd love to go to the It's a Wonderful Life Festival in Seneca Falls. I'm sure it'd be great. It'd be fun to cover that. We start with, as we go through the town, hearing voices. These are people's prayers for George Bailey. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. If you've watched the film, you realize that we're in front of Gower Drugs and hear Mr. Gower. We're in front of Martinis and we hear Martini. We hear Bert the cop. We hear Ernie the cab driver. Each of these characters are the ones giving these prayers. And that ends with... Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. And then, and this is, you know how I said that I often would miss the beginning of this movie? Every time we go into space, I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is weird. In some ways, it's a religious film, right? Because that is, it's you true. could argue... That is God talking to Joseph and Joseph, possibly his dad from the Bible. Uh, and then you bring in, you know, what's his face? Uh, Clarence. So it's so it's weaved. It's not it doesn't hit you over the head. It's just weaved into it very organically. And so I always think it works. But I always wonder what people who are not religious or don't believe in God or any of that um, think when they see this sequence in the movie. I, I, well, so as a filmmaker, I think yeah. it's odd, but I, I like it. As a person who's not religious, I love it. I mean, but I've never had a problem with re religious themes in films. I mean, I think yeah. they're great stories. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I think it is clear. I mean, that's what this movie is. If you cut out, oh, it's, a, yeah. it's a fantasy, you know, like it, it, it's dealing with magic. So th that's how I see it. Um, <laughs> Easy now. Uh, Easy now. Go ahead. Yes. Well, <laughs> we're not getting into that. Here. We are not getting into that here. We'll save that for a short for a medium. Um, by the way, uh, so this is actually uh, real images taken mm -hmm. of the Stefan Quintet. And Frank Capra says that if he hadn't become a filmmaker, he would have become an astronomer. Wow. And he and he was buddies with Edwin Hubble, the great astronomer, ast astronomer, that astronomer, the great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I had to decide if I could keep that misspeaking in. <laughs> Astronomy, you say. <laughs> he was buddies with Edwin Hubble uh, and would hang out with him up at the observatory. And not only that, he brought Hubble, the astronomer, as his guest to the Academy Awards. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. He just um, was clearly drawn to stars of another kind. Boom. <laughs> All right. That was good. I like that one a lot. Um, so, and what we hear is a conversation between Joseph and another character, which are just this sort of blinking lights in space. Yeah. And the other character's name in the script is Franklin and was initially supposed to be Ben Franklin. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. 
I, sure. it, I, I, I think it, I think it's a good idea that I think was right to jettison because, yeah. I, you know, it's just one more thing to get into. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey. Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? And so they call Clarence, and I love that we have these bigger lights that are talking, and then a little itty bitty tiny light <laughs> comes running up and crashes to this music of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. It's such a good intro because you get right away, voiceover wise, they've cast this really well. The guy who's playing a sense is God has this very natural, paternal, relaxed, warm mm -hmm. timber to his voice. He's calm. With, and the other dude, Joseph, he's just more like, well, you know, it, you, well, it's that. What's why I'm here. It's the clockmakers. So this concern of his uh, more of a cantankerous approach, which I love that. And he's the one that says, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's not that smart. And God says, yeah, but he's got the, the, you know, the uh, belief of a child. And so there's something sweet in that. So immediately before Clarence even shows up, you've got what you've been handed to handed is the God character vouching for Clarence. So we, as an audience subconsciously are like, okay, we're on Clarence's side. We, we like, we, we know underdogs, we cheer for underdogs. So right before even Clarence shows up, we're already like invested in what Clarence is going to be in this film. You know what just occurred to me? You know, there's this movie that just came out spirited and it's so funny because spirited is actually kind of a combo of, a Christmas Carol, of course, but also it's a yeah. wonderful life because you're sort of seeing be things behind the scenes and things from the perspective of the spirits. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going on here. A man down on earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. What do you think about that line? Yeah, I think it's a strong line. And then followed up by saying um, he's thinking of throwing away the greatest gift a human being can have, a person can have. And so it's this, it's already laying the groundwork for this idea of suicide right off the bat uh, early in a film like this. Pretty uh, groundbreaking, I would think, at, uh, at the time. Well, and it's so it's funny because I think as a kid, yeah. if I heard the line, is he sick? No, worse, discouraged. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought much of it. Right. As a grown-up, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Discouraged. Yeah, that can be real, real bad. It doesn't sound like a thing that could be real, real bad, but that could be real, real bad. Yeah. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I always find it strange that this guy that was born in like the 1600s or something, his favorite book is Tom Sawyer. Yeah, I don't know why. That's a good point. Yeah, It's I'm Americana, really, isn't it, Tom? It's as Americana as you can get. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. And they say, we're going to go show them their life. And we see George Bailey, who's a young George Bailey, played by Bobby Anderson. And he gets on a shovel in the snow and slides down onto like a frozen pond. Yeah. The, so one of the things they did was they really wanted to fill out the town and all the characters in the mm -hmm. town. So a bunch of the people that we are going to meet later, like Sam and Ernie and uh, Marty, all of those are the boys that are playing with him and doing this sledding thing. Yeah. He's 12 years old. It's 1919. We see another kid slide down. By the way, did you know, apparently we are trespassing on Mr. Potter's land here? Oh, I did not know that. No. 
I think there's a little sign way in the background. I never noticed it either. And we also see our first glimpse of the hee-haw greeting, which is something we get from Sam Wainwright. And here comes the scare baby, my kid brother, Harry Bailey. I'm not scared. And Harry slides down and crashes through the ice, and George jumps in and saves him. Really great moment. But also a nice little foreshadowing for Harry, because Harry... Uh, he's not scared, which is why he shoots down all those planes in World War II and saves all those uh, saves all those men on the transport because Harry has bravery within him. And so even in that moment, in that little kind of foreshadowing throwaway moment between brothers and sibling stuff going on, you have Harry push back a little bit. But when Harry jumps, falls in, who's the first person he calls for is George, and George comes running and jumps in, risks his life once again, thinking of himself or thinking of them, other people over himself. And gets people to form a chain to get his brother out. But we hear it cost him the hearing in his left ear. And this is the thing. George Bailey is a hero. Yeah, like, he is. Top to bottom. I'm not entirely sure how many lives George Bailey is responsible for saving. Yeah. But it's a lot. And this is the first one at 12 years old. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor. An absolutely incredible game. Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And then we cut to, it's kind of the town. It's obviously now the spring because they're wearing baseball uniforms. And this is one of the things about this movie. And one of the reasons I'm really glad that we're doing it in the full version. The attention to detail in this movie, props and costumes and seasons, and it is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And the other thing we see is that we see this crazy carriage <laughs> parked in the middle of this street and clarence asks who's that a king that's henry f potter the richest and meanest man in the county and the thing is it's great as you said great stage design it's a hustle and bustle of a modern city at that time but here comes an old old guy stuck in the past riding a carriage because of what it symbolizes it also grabs attention it also mm-hmm. means he's not in any rush to get anywhere because he's the money. You know, they said it and get shorty. Um, when you're really important, they wait for you, you know? And so right. it's like that, that is what you're seeing here. Uh, just evokes kind of in a subconscious level, the differences in how he's approaching the world. 
and his gang of friends throws George into the drugstore, <laughs> which is where he works. By the way, this is so this is all, as I said, shot on the Encino uh, RKO Ranch. And if you've ever been on backlots, most of the buildings are facades, which mm-hmm. means you just there's an exterior and there's nothing inside. And every few buildings, maybe you build one that does have an interior. Gower Drugs had both an interior and exterior. So this is all on the ranch and this is the wow. interior from the backlot. Uh, there's a girl sitting at the counter. And that is young Mary Hatch. And again, this is the intention to detail, the attention to all of the different people in this community. George grabs this thing and says, Wish I had a million dollars. Flicks the lighter. Hot dog. (laughs) It's me, Mr. Gower, George Bailey. You're right. Yes, sir. And we have a shot of Mr. Gower. And it's a great shot through this sort of frosted glass. And there's kind of an opening for his head and an an opening below for his hands where we see a flask. Mm -hmm. And this is an actor named H.B. Warner. Mm. H.B. Warner is most known for playing Jesus in Cecil B. DeMille's King of Kings, the silent film. Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. is nuts if you go and look at the at it's not reckon i mean barely recognizable and it you know classic jesus looking character in this black and white silent film and he didn't work that much because he was kind of typecast as jesus and he was so grateful to capra to let him play this drunk because it revitalized his career wow this late in his career yeah okay George goes behind the counter because this is a drugstore, which means it's also a soda shop. And in watch walks Violet Bick, another of the characters that we're going to know for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? Great foreshadowing. It just nails these characters right from the beginning. Yeah. And I even love the moment where Violet to George, after he gives her the candy, goes, Help me down. Help you down. Help me get down. <laughs> And that, cause that's George. Like, yeah. why, why would I help you? And, and how many other boys do you think if she said that to Sam Wainwright, would Sam Wainwright help her get down? He haw. Yes, he would. <laughs> oh. Made up your mind yet? I'll take chocolate with coconuts. I don't like coconuts. You don't like coconuts. And that leads George to go on a, rant about where coconuts come from because he is fascinated with the world he pulls out his issues of national geographic and this is one of the first things we find out about george bailey is that he wants to travel and then he's exclusive about it he knows he's unusual for having yep this impulse you know and um it's a great it's a great this whole scene is really great as you said earlier and laying the groundwork for these characters but also the relationships right because violet and mary clearly there's always been a jealousy there will always be a jealousy between violet and mary um i think mary sticks her tongue out at violet as she leaves Mm -hmm. uh and then here uh george um just like he yelled at violet help you get down she said he says to her hey listen you don't like coconuts hey listen brainless you know there's yeah he's got an aesthetic of how he presents things um, at a young age. So it's believable that a young boy would talk like that at the time, you know, whatever. So oh, it yeah. works so well. Um, but he, what he's talking about are things that he loves and that he's telling the woman in the future who will be his wife yeah. about who he is as a person. And I think watching at this time, it was really fun to see the connective tissues of him having that interaction with her at the shop 
And then later when he's grabbing her by the show uh, arms and telling her like, he doesn't want anything. anything, I want to do what I want to do, you know? And so you see that she would understand that because even as a child, he knew he wanted to go see the world and she knew he wanted to go see the world. You know, you know, you know what I think one of the, the, the blessings and the curses of George Bailey is Yeah. most people or a lot of people don't know what they want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. George Bailey has always known exactly who he was and what he wanted. Yeah. I, I love, by the way, that once he's, that he bends over at one moment and Mary leans down and first checks to see if this is his good ear and then says, George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. Talk about people who know what they want at young ages. Yep. 100%. And of course, he doesn't hear this. And then he gets up. And how do you feel about the fact that she clearly said, I don't want coconut? And he is clearly putting coconut on her ice cream. Well, you know, he's trying to educate her about coconut. There you go. I don't know. I would not want coconut on my chocolate ice cream. Really? Oh, I'm not a big, not a big coconut guy. I love coconut. Um, well, you, you're a better match with George Bailey, I guess. <laughs> Hello. And then... We kind of peek in on Mr. Gower and you can see him crying. And then, and this is, you know, Capra's such a good storyteller. Yeah. He looks down and sees a telegram. And on the telegram, we see the words, your son died of influenza. Yeah. You know what I never thought about What's before? That? What's that? You know what year this is taking place? Uh, wait, the film itself right now? Not, yep. did, you, did you say 1919 or something like that? 1919. Okay. This is the well, 1919. Well, it's the 1919 flu. Oh, this is the pandemic, dude. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, right. Shit. I've never, ever made that connection. I didn't either until watching it this time. Damn. But that's what's going on. It is right. clearly the 1919 influenza epidemic. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Capra caught the 1919 flu in San, when he was in the army in San Francisco. Wow. Another interesting thing that I never thought about. Do you know how Mr. Gower got his name? No. Gower Street in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It makes total sense. Uh, and he goes in to check on Mr. Gower, who's making pills and, and drops them because he's obviously drunk. Hmm. And he's gives instructions because George is the delivery boy to take the pills to this family that's very, very sick with diphtheria. diphtheria. Hmm. And as George looks around, he notices the bottle that Mr. Gower was taking things from which clearly says poison. Yeah. Also, when you turn it around, you can kind of see that the bottle used to say licorice on it. So the, this is what area that I think the prop department wasn't as great. And George realizes these are poison pills and he's trying, he's doing the thing where like, I don't want to say, Hey, Mr. Gower, you messed up. But like, he's like, are you sure you want to me to do this? Mr. Gower. And Gower is, really emotional i mean yeah. he literally just found out his son died he sends him off enough is enough like he asks yeah. enough questions and he goes just get going because he wants to sit in his grief um and I, i'm just like this is a great and what occurred to me was this is a great example of the american work ethic in a negative way in that mm. people want stuff to function so well even when the owner of the establishment's son dies right he still has to come into work yep. and work and because people need their medicine people need yeah. groceries people need their convenience people need their ice cream like people need their stuff and he has to work because he has to pay bills he has to pay rent and even his son dying 
isn't enough. To, so the fact that he has to go through this grief while also not being able to sit and wallow in it on his own and go through it and navigate it and come out the other side, he's forced to go to work. So naturally, in order to deal with his grief, he's he's drinking. Not that I excuse it, but you know it's understandable. I never thought about it this way until you just said that. But let me ask you this mm-hmm. question. Uh, would George Bailey go to work the day that his son died? Probably. Yeah. Probably. That's because that's the that's the that's supposedly what you take pride in is an American work ethic is well what do we see him do throughout this entire movie yeah always sacrificing himself for other people yes a hundred percent well this it's funny I was gonna bring this up later but it's something we're gonna I need to talk about as we go yeah. through this I love this movie and the thing I'm about to say is mm-hmm. not a criticism okay. but that thing you just described yeah is a thing that I was really thinking about throughout watching this whole movie of yeah. when can you say no Right. You know, right. Um, it's not a criticism of the film, no. but definitely a thing that I was thinking about more this time. Yeah. The other thing that happens as he's leaving to go make this delivery is he sees this sign that says, ask, ask dad. He knows. <laughs> and so instead of making the delivery, he runs over to the building and loan where that carriage was parked with Mr. Potter. Mm-hmm. And the first person we meet is Uncle Billy, Thomas Mitchell. Yeah. So we've done two other movies with Thomas Mitchell. One, of course, is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is probably my favorite of him. Yeah. And he's also great in High Noon. And all three of these characters are very, very different. Yeah. Want to know who else was considered for this part? Ooh. Walter Brennan. That makes sense. Adolph Manjou. Mm. And W.C. Fields. (laughs) Oh, I could see that, but he, he, there's no way he would let go of the stick. Would he? I don't know. By the way, so we were talking about $8,000. Oh. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't, it's uncle Billy. I can't picture anyone else. Yeah, I agree. Um, we were talking about like all the connections to all the d- other great films. Yeah. Thomas Mitchell, man, he's one of those guys with the golden touch. Oh yeah. Just check out 1939. He's in. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Only angels have wings. Stagecoach, Stagecoach. and Gone with the Wind. Yep, yep. He's in all those movies at the same year, and he wins Best Supporting Actor for Stagecoach. Yeah, like this guy is in a ton of great films. He's a veteran man. Yeah. So George wants to go see his dad to ask him what to do about these pills, but his dad, there's a big nasty meeting going on, and. Uh, Uncle Billy forgot to call the bank examiner. <laughs> and this is the first time we see little strings on his fingers because of his bad memory. And George goes into his dad's office and there is Mr. Potter. I'm not crying, Mr. Potter. Well, you're begging. That's a whole lot of work. Well, all I'm asking for is 30 days more. Well, this is great here too because um, George's father doesn't go, get out of here, son. He he, he lets George come in. He's having his interaction. Mm-hmm. So it's, if, it's if, as if um, Potter has visited their living room. Yep. The way he's approaching it, right? And he's just, oh, okay, son, hold on, son. And he's having the back and forth with Potter. And then Potter says what he says, which causes a reaction from George, which is, again, another foreshadowing of the battle that we will see between yep. these two as the film goes on. So uh, Mr. Potter is played by Lionel Barrymore. Oh, oh one of the classic guys Here's who here's who was up for this role. Mm. Other people that are interesting, Claude Rains. I totally could see that. And Vincent Price. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Although how old is Vincent Price? He he'd be pretty young, I would think, at yeah, this point. I think so. Lionel Barrymore had worked with 
Capra on You Can't Take It With You. Yes. If you want to contrast two performances, contrast those two, because he is a horrible, evil person in It's a Wonderful Life, and he is the best, most awesome person who's totally fun in You Can't Take It With You. Yeah, that's the mark of a great actor, isn't it? Well, and the other thing, apparently, he had played Scrooge multiple times and played him on the radio and was well known for playing Scrooge. You know, we talk about great villains, man. Mr. Potter. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, his this is a this is a family stock. This is a Hollywood legacy, the Barrymores, up until oh, yeah. now. Drew Barrymore doing her uh, show in the afternoons, you know, so... This is a man with a, a strong connection to a multiple decade, multiple yep. generation Hollywood family. And the other part of this, Steve, is that he talked Jimmy Stewart into being in the movie. Jimmy oh, really? was on the fence and oh. um, Lionel Barrymore, because they had been in You Can't Take It With You. Because, I mean, I think Jimmy was like concerned about doing this kind of darker suicide kind of aspect. Mm-hmm. And, and it was Lionel Barrymore who said to him, hey, man, this is a role you must take. As an older actor saying to him, like, you know the great ones when they come along. This is a great one. You must take the role. So, like, he's the one that talked him into it. And, of course, having worked together with Capra before, I'm sure right. he did the work as well. But, like, it was Barrymore who talked him into it, which is ironic considering they're going to be false. And maybe Barrymore knew, like, I will be able to really bring out this performance going toe-to-toe right. with this guy who looks like Mr. All-America. Yeah. Um, And now we get to sort of one of the basic thematic ideas of the movie because Potter is going. Did you put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of way. But foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. (laughs) Not my children. Look, when we recorded our first version of this of this podcast in in December of 2016, Donald Trump had just been elected president. <laughs> you're going to you're going to get us in trouble, but okay, yes. And- Here here's what I will say. Yeah, yeah. Is that the philosophies uh there is a philosophy of you shouldn't coddle people. Yes. That's not good for them. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there's a philosophy of when people are in trouble they need help. Mm-hmm. And those philosophies are battling in this movie. And those Absolutely. philosophies are still battling today. Yeah. That's what I meant earlier when I said this film talks has presents themes, presents storylines that still resonate, that we're still arguing about or battling today. You're absolutely right, Steve. You know, because no one who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps did it alone. There was some government program, there was some assistance, there was some way, um, and so it's a, it's a fallacy that anyone has ever been a self made person. Not possible. Not possible. Not possible. Those systems set up for it not to be possible. For God's sake. So. Well. Even even you got lucky, you know? Yeah, or I mean, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even just somebody came into your business on the day that you were about to fail and spent some money, and you got to keep going for one more day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard skull character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. You imagine someone calling your dad a miserable failure in front of you when you're 12 years old? Well, no, I think I'd. Well, maybe at 12 I might take a little shit, but at 15 I'd be absolutely destroying them. So he's not a failure. You John, can't say John, that about my father. John, you're John. not. You're the biggest man in town. Run along. Bigger than him. And he shoves Mr. Potter. I love the two hand shove. The little two hand yeah. shove is great. And then he says to his dad, "You're the biggest man in town. Bigger than him. Bigger than everybody." So let me get to this theory. Okay. 
Steve Morris, this entire film doesn't happen if Gower doesn't come to work that day. This entire film does not happen if Gower doesn't open up, if George doesn't get healed from his ear thing in time, if he doesn't put poison in the pills, George doesn't go to the building alone to begin and witness, to witness the battle between Mr. Potter and his dad. He doesn't witness it. As a kid, at that formidable age, this battle sticks with him. And from this point forward, it is what carries him through. The, it is his main antagonist through the whole movie. So if Gower doesn't open up the shop that day, he doesn't put the poison in the pill. The poison in the pills! And uh, George doesn't take the pills and go ask his dad about it and what have you. So this whole thing happens because of Mr. Gower. The entire movie happens because of Mr. Gower. I think it's. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, certainly, I think this moment of hearing someone insult his dad, yeah, that puts a big thing in George. Yeah, and um, the target. It puts a target on on um, Potter's back from George. absolutely, absolutely. I have to tell. So, so Potter's in a wheelchair, um, yeah. and part part of why he's in a wheelchair is that Lionel Barrymore had injured his hips, and this was just easier for him. You know. <laughs> It's not that he couldn't walk, but it was just he was in pain and this was easier. And it ends up being so great that he's in this wheelchair. And, and there's this guy who's sort of a forbidding looking guy who yeah. is pushing that wheelchair. I knew nothing about him. Would you like to know something about please, this guy? Please. This guy is amazing. Okay. So he's Australian, first of all, and he fought in the Boer War. Wow. Holy shit. And he was apparently an incredible athlete competing very very competitively in all sorts of different sports thing he was the best at was boxing do you want to know who he was the sparring partner for jack dempsey you were right on the first name and you're right on the about the same era jack johnson oh jack oh wow yeah oh wow the first black heavyweight champion jack johnson wow sparred with him for years would do exhibition matches with him when jack johnson couldn't find an opponent what I wonder if he's in the great white hope, like a version of him. Fascinating. Okay. And, and then because of all of his boxing skills, he becomes a stunt man in Hollywood. Makes sense. Is a stunt man in all sorts of silent films, including silent films where he fought Jack Dempsey and, and Gene Tunney in, in movies. And all those films have been lost. And so you, I know the first movie that made you cry, cry was the modern remake of the champ. Yes. One of the boxers in the original champ. Wow. Yeah. The Wallace Berry one with yeah. Jackie Cooper. Right. Yep. So that that's the guy who's pushing around Potter in the wheelchair. That's awesome. And then again, the storytelling's great. George comes out. He's still looking at the pills, trying to decide what to do. He goes back to the drugstore where Gower has now gotten a call from this very sick family that the their medicine hasn't showed up. George walks in. Gower is furious. And he hits him twice in the ear. What kind of drinks you bring in away? God damn. I cried during the this scene watching it uh, this time. Sobbing. I'm sobbing watching yeah. this. Yeah. By the way, apparently H.P. Warner really hit this kid in the fucking ear. Jesus. And really made his ear bleed. Jesus. Yeah. Back then, I mean, those days, I'm not excusing, of course, but those days, th that shit was Things not monitored. Um, and I, this is where the way, the many, many ways that George Bailey is a hero. I mean, he jumped in the ice to save his, 
brother, but this one, yeah. a man is beating him in his bad ear. He's weeping and he's trying to tell him, trying to save that guy from he's killing not fighting back. He's trying to reason with him yeah. to get him to understand what he did. He's he has taken the punishment to get him to understand that he has messed up. So to save his job and his business. Don't you know that boy's very sick? You need my soda here, Mr. Gower. You don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're on it. You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It takes a second, but Gower finally hears it. Yeah. He, he tastes the pills. You see the reaction on his face. Yeah. To know that he's right. And man, the moment that really gets me is when Gower goes towards George and George cowers and says, Don't do my sewer again. Oh, no, Don't do no, my no. sewer again. Oh, George. <laughs> George. It's going to make me cry right now just describing it. And that Gower embraces him on his knees, mm-hmm. you know, because. And they have a great him. moment where they're both crying. Yeah. And because Gower can finally release the pain of having lost his son in that moment. Of course, it'll be many times he'll be releasing that pain, but certainly in that moment in the day of, probably within hours of hearing the story or hearing the news, he's able to have a cathartic release with George and hugging probably, in essence, a pseudo child of his and hugging oh, yeah. Him, yeah, holding him and crying as, as George cries into his arms, you know, probably – a way he probably held his own son in times past when his son was crying about something. So just a really beautiful exchange. And I think Steve, you're so smart to point out that little moment because most directors might not put that in this, uh, might not shoot that moment or most screenwriters might not put that moment. But when he says, please don't hurt my good. When he pulls back as a kid, you know, as I used, my dad used to spank me and there is that moment where you're like, please don't, you know, you, you have that fear. And so it resonates with me from that experience or you don't want someone who's uh, an adult to come near you if they're going to spank you or something or hurt you. And so it's like, I, it's so honest. It's beautiful. It makes the hug even more special when it happens. I can't believe in that until you just said what you said, that I never made this connection before Mm. between the son that he lost and the boy that he's embracing. And there's the connection to, he just lost a son. He almost killed somebody's son. Yes. He almost killed someone else's kid yeah. in negligence. Yes. A hundred percent. All of that stuff is happening in this moment with Mary watching, by the way. And, and, and this she is the stuck around to finish her chocolate, man. Well, it had that coconut on it. I mean, it was delicious. <laughs> I wonder if she's picking him up. <laughs> There's a deleted scene where she's picking the coconut off the chocolate. So uh. <laughs> one, one of the things I found interesting watching this movie this time is these are these vignettes of George's life as we're going to go through his path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each one of them is like a perfect short film. Yes. Oh, that's a perfect film that we just watched. Right. That is a, that's a great YouTube short. Just put it up yeah. there. It's a perfect scene. Yep. A, a perfect uh, film. You're right. You're right. And now we're going to go to our next one where we start with Jimmy Stewart, who I think does, he's 38, I think, when he made this movie or something. God, he looks 22, 25. When I he think he does an incredible job playing his younger version of himself. Yeah. And he goes, Oh, no, 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 no. I'll look, Joe. I, I, I want a big one. <laughs> and he holds out his arm, and we do this freeze frame, and it's so funny and endearing. So good. It's a good face. I like it. I like George Bailey. This is a way of paying it forward, right? God, in essence, or the whatever you want to say, the all whatever that is, uh, Ben Franklin, 
Sure, Ben Franklin <laughs> prepares the audience to like Clarence, and then Clarence pays it forward by preparing the audience to like George. Totally. He's a great face. Yeah. I don't want one for one night. I want something for a thousand and one nights, with plenty of room here for labels from Italy and Baghdad, Samarkand. And what they're talking about is a piece of luggage. Yeah. And the guy selling the luggage says, I see a flying carpet, huh? Yeah, I don't suppose you'd like this old secondhand job, would you? Pulls out this big leather suitcase, and George has a huge reaction and says, Ah, you're talking. Gee whiz, I could use that as a raft in case the boat sunk. How much does this cost? No charge. That's my trick here, George. Sound like you said no charge. That's right. And he tilts the suitcase down, and we see that it reads George Bailey on it. Mm. Because this was a gift from Mr. Gower. What a great connective tissue to have in the next scene. All these years later, Mr. Gower is still a prominent part of George's life. What it does is that it fills out what happened in the last decade. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, that 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 these lives have gone. Because when it, it's so funny. I was paying so much more attention this time mm. to all the characters other than George. Mm. Because they have whole, full, complete lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as we see them throughout this movie. What boat are you sailing on? Well, I'm working across on a cattle boat. A cattle boat? Okay, I like cars. I don't know what that means, but okay. Well, it would, no, well, this was a, a really common way to get transportation was you you worked a job on the boat. Oh, so, so, he's, so yeah. it kind of conveys that George is not rich, but right. he want, he's going to go see the world by hook or by crook. Yep. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of money for this trip. Right, good point. Yeah. Um, I know a guy who's a, one of the guys who worked on the shark dock, who's one of mm-hmm. the uh free divers who's sort of a deep sea fisherman and he became a very very experienced uh he, he like runs giant tankers now mm. but that's what he did was he wanted to go diving at all these different places of the world so he worked ships doing transportation to get him to thailand to get him to singapore to get him wow. to, yeah that's what he did uh we go back to the drugstore to thank mr gower and mr gower looks great yeah you know very happy yeah we're walking down the street we you know have a little joke with uncle billy we see Ernie, the cab driver, and we see Bert, who is Ward Bond. Yeah. Talk about another guy who's been in a ton of amazing God. movies. Yeah, War Searchers. He was in 13 films nominated for Best Picture. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this movie is just filled, filled with people. And I should say that Frank Phelan is uh, Ernie Bishop, who is also great and in tons and tons and tons of stuff. Now, a lot of people have speculated that Jim Henson was influenced by these two guys to name Bert and Ernie, Bert and Ernie for the Muppets or for Sesame Street. But in all the research I did before the, we did the show today, every single person to a man or to a woman says that is all not true, that um, it was completely created on the spot as they looked at the puppets and were running through names. These are just the two names that fit for the look of Bert and Ernie and that None of them ever had a conversation with Henson where he said, no, I totally named them after the two characters from It's a Wonderful Life. It's possible. Maybe it's subconscious, but he never once, apparently, according to people who are with him, because obviously no one ever asked him the question directly on right. an interview or anything. But according to the producers and writers who've worked with Jim, they all said he never mentioned that it was Bert and Ernie from It's a Wonderful Life. That's so crazy. And it just so goes to like stuff we yeah. talked about sometimes before of like, we don't know. There's so many things that are just urban legends. And so, or some guy said a thing and that got repeated. And then that everyone thought that's the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, we met her in the drugstore before, but now we are going to meet Violet again. Yeah. As a grown up, Gloria Graham. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. 
Hello, Violet. Hey, you look good. That's some dress you got on there. This old thing? Well, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. Oh, this old thing? Oof. She also nominated twice for Best Supporting Actress, one for The Bad and the Beautiful. I mean, th- like the, the 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 power of this cast is yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, Her charisma and her sexuality in this scene is so great. Yeah. And they all stop to watch her. And I love that as they watch her walk away, Ernie says, How would you like to yes. test? <laughs> But by the way, there's a woman. If you really want to study this, there's a woman in a in a in a print dress who has a hat, and she walks by like five times in the sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so they're clearly like you know patching together films that were at the yeah. beginning of the shot to the end of the shot. Yeah, she's kind of all over the place. Well, I think she was just trying to stop traffic herself and couldn't get it done. I mean, who's Violet? No one can be Violet for God's sakes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we are we are back home. Wait, wait, don't miss okay. the joke where Bert says, uh, I, I better go uh, check and see what the missus is up to. His full <laughs> guilt on display for the guy. Yes. It was great. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Um, we're <laughs> back at the Bailey boarding house where we get to meet mom, which is Beulah Bondi. Beulah Bondi, yeah. Who is his mom and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. She played his mom apparently four or five times in her career up until the Jimmy Stewart show. She played wow. his mom on the Jimmy Stewart show, which I think is hilarious. Um, and the dad is Samuel S. Hines, which if he seems like he plays a really good businessman, this guy was actually a fairly successful lawyer until middle age. He didn't start acting until his 40s. So you're saying there's a chance. I like I'm it. saying there's, there's always a chance, John. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find yourself now being more interested in those stories of the people that started late? You know, uh, like, uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But like. Rodney Dangerfield is one I know that like never made it, never made it. And then it was in his forties that he finally started to become successful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of them. Or Farina. We've talked about that where, you know, it was a cop for into his forties and then decided to become an actor. Yeah. 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 You just never know. And this is when we also meet Annie Lillian Randolph. George, that's why all children should be girls. But if they were all girls, there wouldn't be any. Oh, never mind. I love, she's great. Oh, she's great. And it doesn't veer into what you've seen, at least in my opinion, it doesn't veer into what you've seen in other films where the portrayal of a of a black maid or a black housekeeper or a black caretaker of the house uh, is played for a lower uh, status. She's very much a part of the family and you sense that in their conversations and in their in the little bit of their ball busting as well. I totally agree. And yes, these are the parts that, that African-Americans were limited to, you know, yes. maids and servants and stuff like that. Yeah. She is completely, not only is she completely her own person, she's really funny. Yes. But she is treated like a totally equal part of the family. She yeah. might be the maid, but 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 that's not how she's treated. Yeah. And George sits down with dad. Man, this scene really hit me this time. Yeah. Smarter, you look tired. And of course, I know that dad's going to die tonight. Right. Oh, I had another tussle with Potter today. Oh, what's eating that old money-grubbing buzzard anyway? Oh, he's a sick man, frustrated, sick in his mind, sick in his soul, if he has one. He hates everybody that has anything that he can't have. Hates us mostly, I guess. I'll tell you what I find really interesting, and I'm not saying that this is true of Potter. Yeah. But the fact is, the Baileys are a happy family. Yeah. Well, and that's the point that the film is trying to make, is if you're obsessed with money and making money, and all you care about is money... You're going to have an, an unhappy existence. Even Sam Wainwright, 
later on in the film, he's got all these women around him, but he doesn't have Mary. He doesn't nope. have a Mary. And even the woman he shows up with later on in the film, you can tell she's one of those kind of socialite type people, right? So it's this idea like there's something about there's something of value when you when you care about helping people, building a village, connecting with a town, being there for people. It's much more richer for you in life than being obsessed with this idea of money and how it can corrupt your family if they're obsessed with money along with you, you know. You know, George, I wish we could send Harry to college with you. Your mother and I talked it over half the night. Mm. We have that all figured out. If you Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, then he'll go. Pretty young for that job. Oh, no younger than I was. Well, you were born older, George. That's one of those lines that, man, it's so true about George Bailey, and it also is not the kind of thing you really want to hear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. And George knows exactly what he wants to do. And he tells his dream about building things in modern cities. Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell half that in cash. <laughs> you know about the I Wish song? You know that that concept? No. It's a Disney concept. And it, it, oh. it's not just Disney. But the basic idea is that you have your character at the beginning of your movie Sing the song that tells them what they want. I want to be up there with the where the people are. I want to oh, okay. live a different life. I want someday my prince will come. You know, and it's it is sort of a classic structure, not just for Disney movies, but at the very beginning of a movie, we have a character say, "I want to be the heavyweight champion of the world. I want to be you know whatever they want to be." And then the movie becomes about them getting that. Mm. George okay. just said his "I wish." Oh right, yeah. George is very clear. I want to travel the world and yep. I want to build stuff. Yeah. And I don't want to be here. And in every other one of those movies, the movie is all about how that person pursues those dreams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is not what this movie's about. Yeah. This movie is really, really different. Of course, it's just a hope, but uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? And there's a reaction. Uh, and I love, by the way, that Annie is there listening and George says, well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. <laughs> oh, you would, would you? <laughs> I couldn't. I, uh, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. You know when you say the thing and you know, it. you know, like, particularly if you say the thing, it hurts your dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he knows it. My pop, I didn't mean that. I, but I... It, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and a length of pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. And what's interesting, too, about the I Wish story, and there's tons and tons of them. I want to be the dancer. There's like October Sky where I want to build rocket ships. There's, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, all these stories. And, uh, and of the person in particular who wants to get away from the family business. That's a yeah. really classic. I don't want to be at the restaurant. I don't want to be at the mine. I don't want to be at the whatever is that usually the father is trying to force them to do the thing they don't want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not what Peter Bailey's about, you know? But he does defend what he's doing. He says, You know, George, I feel that in a small way, we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof, and walls, and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, George understands that he's offended his father and walks it back. He says, you want to know something? You want to know a secret? I think you're a great man. And that's true. And George actually believes that. George actually does think that about his father, as he said it when he was a kid. 
and he says it here again. But I will disagree with you slightly. I do think his dad is using a little bit of guilt to try to play George. You're right. No, you're right. A little bit. Just a lot. He's not, he's not forcing his son, but he's certainly trying to play on his son, which he knows because yeah. he's raised his son, his son's proclivity to sacrifice himself for others. Um, and maybe his dad knew better. Maybe his dad knew that George had a destiny to help people rather than running after money and making money, especially because he's seen what it did to Potter. And the last thing he'd want his son to end up being is another version of Potter. You know, we were talking off mic and I mentioned mm. something about my dad. Um, yeah. And it really didn't hit me until just thinking about that line, the shabby little office and yeah. dad's line of saying in a small way, we are doing something important. That really was my dad, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to, I'm going to have a hard time not crying right now talking about it, but his office in the mission district in San Francisco did kind of seem like a shabby little office and he did. And I did work there growing up. My sister worked there a lot more than I did. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't like working there, you know, I really didn't. Cause I wanted to do arts and tell stories and do all this sort of stuff. My dad didn't understand, but yeah, he was doing real good in that community. That's, you know, he was all about, he was a scoutmaster. He was all about serving the community. That's what my dad was about. You know? Yeah. My, um, my dad and I would battle over, you know, cause my father wanted me, my dad was a, what do you call it? He was, um, he liked to put roots down. And so yeah. I was always running. I was always running and it, it drove him insane, you know, like, because I would not, I didn't want to stay in Virginia. I didn't want to stay in these, I wanted to go see the world. I wanted to go to LA. I wanted to go to England. I wanted to go and all these things. So we always had the battle because my father didn't have the taste for those things, but I did. It wasn't a wanderlust. I wasn't, I know people have wanderlust. It wasn't that. It was that I wanted to, that to me, I saw where we grew up as this small town in Virginia and I wanted out uh, because I knew I could do something else. I could be something else if I just got out, you know? And so um, that's why, that's why the film connects to me in that way. And that, not, not that I think I'm any kind of George Bailey, I think of, but I, can sense that desire to get yeah. out of being stuck in a small town. This is why that's how I viewed Dale city at the time. Cause it was kind of a small town when I was growing up. Now it's a big, way bigger town than it was when I was starting out there living there at nine, 10, 12 years old, you know? Um, but it's a beautiful scene, you know, and speaks to the love they have for each other and what father wouldn't try to try to convince his son to be, because you want the business to carry on. And he clearly didn't think Harry was the guy. No, and it seemed like no one else, and certainly was going to be Uncle Billy. Uh, so it didn't seem like anyone else was really presented who could take over the building alone, other than George. So maybe there was a real kind of I have to let my son do what he wants to do, but I have to try to at least maybe convince him to stick around so that you know these people can survive and live in better situations than if they're under Potter's thumb. And you know what, Peter Bailey's a lot like George Bailey because in the end, Peter Bailey. He's going to let his son go and he's going to be trapped in the building alone with Uncle Billy without the real help of George. Yeah. This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now you've got talent, son. I've seen it. And you, you mentioned this line, but I got to I got to just bring it up again because it's such a great moment. He says, Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. And, and, and then because Capra's really funny is that he'll still put a button on a scene and say, Why did you hear that, Annie? I am so happy that George got to say that to his dad. Yeah. Oh yeah. Before he died. Yep. Yep. A little closure. 
little closure. Yep. You, know, you don't know what's happening. You don't know it was elite, but it's a little closure for sure. Yeah. And yet this is a great moment you point out, right? She, yes, she's playing a black man. This is what a lot of black actors were only allowed to do. But I think one of the elements of the film that make us care about the Bailey family is they don't treat her like she's second class. At There's all. no way. Do you think she could call Potter a lunkhead if she was Potter's maid? No, no way. And so it's like the sense is that this is a family that sees everybody as equal, you know, and I think that's a positive kind of subconscious thing of mm -hmm. uh, bubbling below the surface. Well, and I think part of this is like Capra's an immigrant who was called, you know, a walk. God knows. Yeah. Growing up. Like he 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 came from people that were salt of the earth that had to do this kind of work. And George has decided to go to the dance. So let's go to the dance. It's the class <laughs> of 1988 graduation dance. Everybody's Wait, yeah. Let me ask you something before yes. you present the dance. Do you think he decides to go to the dance because of his father's slight guilt trip? And he's like, Oh man, he's probably gonna work on me all night. I gotta get out of here. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that he probably feels like I got to get out of here because he might talk me into it. He might do it and I got to go, you know? Yeah. The, the, my short answer is yes. I don't know that he's actually going like dad's going to guilt trip me all night, but mm -hmm. I think he needs to get out of that space. Yeah. yeah, totally. So he's at the dance. Sam Wainwright is there in a great like check suit. Everyone else is in like, you know, tuxes. Yeah. Uh, and there's some small talk and the principal obviously loves George cause he welcomes him back. We hear a mention about something about a pool. George is the one that gave him the idea to put the pool underground. Yeah. And, uh, there's Violet with her dance ticket who obviously is very into George. And then Marty Hatch comes up and asks if, uh, he remembers his kid sister, Mary, and will you dance with her to give her a thrill? I want and watch Gloria Graham's reactions here. They're great. The back yeah. and forth. And by the way, Gloria, the RKO didn't have faith in, or I'm sorry, the uh, studio didn't have faith in her after this movie. They didn't think she had the goods. So they sold her contract to RKO, and then she ends up winning an Oscar. So, you know, sometimes people believe in you, don't believe in you. You got to yep. believe in you. You got to believe in you. I have some matters. But anyway, the back and forth here, sorry. You know, there are lots of love at first sight kind of moments. Oh, dude. Yeah. George moving through the crowd, and he's kind of a head above everybody else. Yeah. He, when he sees Mary, Donna Reed, it is just perfect. Like when Michael saw Apollonia, man. Lightning, thunder. Absolutely. And one of the things we don't focus on that much, uh, particularly movies of this age, is sound design. The sound yeah. design in this movie is incredible. Mm -hmm. And here we're in this loud sort of chaotic space with music and all sorts of people. And all of that comes down in this moment where they see each other. Yeah. And she is talking to a guy whose face we don't see yet, who is obviously she has no interest in whatsoever. He's boring her tears. Um, and this is, of course, Donna Reed. Uh, originally, Frank Capra wanted Jimmy Stewart's old, old partner from Mr. Smith, Gene Arthur. Yes. For the role of Mary. Yes. And she was busy on a, in a play on Broadway. And then he went to Ginger Rogers. I could see that. I could actually see Ginger Rogers, Rogers to be honest with you. She said the part was way too bland for her. <laughs> oh, Ginger. All right. Yeah. All right. By the way, the, the and this, of course, you know, Donna Reed was a, you know, a bit player. And this is really what made her a star. Yeah, this is her first leading role. Yes. Um, the, the eye light on her is incredible. Oh, my God. She looks beautiful. They move towards each other. This annoying guy is droning on. And George is, I would say, 
It's awesome. And this was supposed to be that guy's dance. Hey, this is my dance. Oh, why don't you stop annoying people? Well, I'm sorry. Hey. Hey. <laughs> uh, do you know who this actor is? Oh, yeah. It's Alfalfa. Yeah. Alf, Carl Alfalfa Switzer. <laughs> yes. What What's funny is Frank Capra worked on the our gang movies, but I think he worked on them in the silent era. So I don't think this would have been his alfalfa. Oh yeah, probably not. I, I would think it's too, too, too young for that. I would. Think. I also think he's kind of out of step with the movie. His comedic stylings are out of step with the movie. Mm. The moment, the, I mean, cause we're going to see him later when he gets the key, he overdoes everything. The, the beginning here where he's having the conversation that works. But then when he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, yeah, it's, he does. He goes overboard and it doesn't quite fit with this film mm. is, you know? So obviously his instincts being honed doing the, the little rascal stuff. That's what he knows from comedy. And then later when he grabs the, when he gets the key and he does the big, hmm, hmm, it's just, it doesn't <laughs> yes. fit in the I get vibe it. Yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've never bumped on it, but no, I totally see your point. Yeah. You look at me as if you didn't know me. Well, I don't. You pass me on the street almost every day. Me? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's a little girl named Mary Hatch. That wasn't you. <laughs> so good. Time for the Charleston contest, John. Yeah, let's do it. So they start this dance. This is one of the most joyful, most like fun sequences ever. Yeah. And one of, again, sound design. One of the nice things is you can totally hear the hollowness of the floor that they're standing on as they as they stomp stomp on it. Uh, I love you know Jimmy Stewart doing the Charleston leg thing, whatever you call that. And then we cut to Alfalfa and another guy. What's the matter, Othello? Jealous? I love the Shakespeare reference in that moment. Oh, I thought he said fella. He said no, he says fella. What's the matter, Othello? Jealous? Oh, that's much more interesting than what I thought. And this is where they talk about the fact that there's a big pool under this floor. And did you further know that George Bailey is dancing right over that crack? I've got the key. And they nod and smile and put the key in. And now we see that floor opening under the dancing, revealing the pool. Yeah, so great. And this pool still exists. Yes. It's at Beverly, what, Beverly Hills High or Hollywood High? Where is it at? Beverly Hills High School. Yeah, Beverly Hills High Still School. a gym with the pool underneath. And the whole way the sequence is set up with them not knowing where that, that the pool is opening up and everyone backing away and people cheering them and cheering them more as they get closer and closer to the pool. Yeah. And them thinking that they're like stars because they don't know the pool is there. And then they step back and they go into the water. You ever done the Charleston stupid? Uh, I don't think so. You? <laughs> Yes, it is a frustrating dance to try to figure out. I am, as you know, not that much of a dancer. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, And I love, you know, everyone else diving in, which, by the way, there's a lot of people diving in. It's actually, and apparently it's not that deep a pool. (laughs) Dude, it's dangerous. Like people just diving in willy nilly. And there are people there like right below them. It's kind of scary a little bit. And George and Mary just keep on dancing in the pool. That's great. It's great. I mean, how you know if you want if you if you want to know how to set up a love story, this is a real good example. Yeah, we fade to black and then we hear the song "Buffalo Gals" uh, being sung. <laughs> By the way, uh, I've never really listened to the lyrics of "Buffalo Gals." Uh, apparently, it's a song about prostitution. Is it really? I didn't. Know and it that. and it's an old minstrel song. Oh shit! Is it really? Yeah. Fuck! I learned it in elementary school in Virginia. Really? Well, it makes sense. Buffalo gals, why don't you come out tonight? 
But for me, it's just this movie. <laughs> right, right. Um, and we fade up. I always thought that this was on an interior set because it just looks so pretty. Mm-hmm. But it's not. This is an exterior. This was also shot on the RKO Ranch. Oh, wow. They do this kind of cute, awkward harmonizing as they get to the end of the song. Just like an organ. George is dressed in a way too big football uniform of the day. She's wearing a big fluffy robe. Mm. This scene is so lovely and sweet and romantic. A little bit sexy. I mean, she's walking home in her underwear, in essence, probably. If and, uh, if that. If that. And a big old robe. So there's a, it's a little sexy. Yeah. I think it's more than a little sexy. Okay. I, I think it's a sexy scene. Okay. You know, if it wasn't me talking, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town. Well... Why don't you say it? I love George's nervousness. Yeah. And what's so great about Mary, Mary has always known what she wanted. Yeah. And she has this powerful confidence, you know? Yeah. Like, she's like, no, I'm going to marry this person. And that's it. Yep. How old are you anyway? 18. 18? It was only last year you were 17. Too young or too old? Oh, no, no. Just right. Your age fits you. Now, I don't know what any of that means. (laughs) <laughs> but it's just such great kind of nervous flirting. Yeah. And then he accidentally steps on the belt of the robe. Oh, sir, by train, please. A pox upon me for a clumsy lout. Your caboose, me lady. You may kiss my hand. Mm. She puts her hand out and he sort of con- contemplates the hand yeah. and he takes it. And then he doesn't kiss his, her hand. He moves forward like he's going to kiss her. Yeah. And then she backs away. Hey, Mary. As I was lumbering down the street, down the street, down the street. It's such perfect, young, sort of nervous love. It's a dance. It's their second dance of the night. Totally. Totally. And then we come upon the old Granville house. And we're going to throw a rock in. I didn't know this bit either. Do you know what other movie the old Granville house is used in? Movie? No. Yeah. What? That is the house owned by the magnificent Ampersons. Oh, shit. Well, well. Right? I mean, it's RKO, which is an RKO movie. Makes sense. You're right. That's why I get, like, the number of threads of things that are in all these great movies is just really wild. Oh, no, don't. I I love that old house. No, you see, you make a wish and then try and break some glass, and you got to be a pretty good shot nowadays, too. too, Oh, no, George, don't. It's full of romance, that old place. I'd like to live in it. Mary has it all planned out as, as much as George knows exactly what he wants. She knows exactly what she wants. Yeah. He throws a rock and breaks a glass and she asks what he wishes for. And this is again, it's the, I wish. Yeah. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year. And a year after that, I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. And then he talks about building things, airfields, skyscrapers, and then as he's speechifying, you see her have a thought. Yeah. You see her grab a rock. Well, oh, you going to throw a rock? She throws it and breaks the glass. Hey, that's pretty good. Which, by the way, a lot of people have talked about the fact that um, she had a really good arm. And she yeah, really she did. did break a glass in that house. She really did. A stuntman was apparently stationed there under the window uh, to throw a rock in the window. But she actually nailed it on the first take. So they used it. What is her wish? 
to be with George Bailey and to keep him in uh, Bedford Falls. So she cursed him to be real clear. Uh, did she though? Yeah, I guess you could, if you want to take a negative point of view of it, sure. She cursed him, but she wished for something like I wish, like you said earlier. So. Yep. And well, and this is a movie in which magic is real. Yeah, true. Very true. And she will not tell him what she wished. Mm. Again, they sing. And now we see that there's this guy on a porch watching him. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. This is, we've gone to full romance. And then he has this really weird speech where she says, then what? Well, then you could swallow it and it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. I mean, this is, George Bailey has gone off. Yeah, right. Am I talking too much? Yes. Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? <laughs> What's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? Want me to kiss her, huh? And this line, I always thought this is a funny line, but now that I'm old, <laughs> the line. Oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, it's very true. That's why they call it youth. <laughs> and now George, who I think would have kissed her, if this guy had not hadn't come along, mm. G- George would have kissed her. Sure. But now he's being sort of aggressive about it. He's saying, hey. Hey. Hey, hold on. Hey, mister, come on back out here. I'll show you some kiss that'll put hair back on your head. <laughs> Which freaks her out. She tries to run. He is stepping on her robe again. And we hear a squeal. What are you? And George looks down and sees an empty robe. Mm. The image of uh, Donna Reed in a bush without clothes on. I always liked that image <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm sure that some people might put some spin on this, that what George is joking about here isn't cool and that this isn't, you know what? I don't care. I think mm-hmm. this is a fantastic scene. Um, he realizes what's happened. Okay. I give up. Where are you? Over here in the hydrangea bushes. <laughs> there you are. Catch. And then stops and goes, wait a minute. What am I doing? <laughs> this is a very interesting situation. Yeah, it's flirting. Yeah, yeah. Man doesn't get in a situation like this every day. I'd like to have my robe. Not in Bedford Falls, anyway. Ouch! Oh! height. I think the dialogue is absolutely perfect. Yeah. It's really funny. I've read about things like this, but I never... Shame on you! I'm going to tell your mother on you. Well, my mother's way up in the corner there. I'll call the police! They're way downtown. They'd be on my side too. And she's getting more upset. But I, but again, it's like, yeah, is he messing with her? Yes, he totally is. And she knows he's messing with her, so she's, you know, she's going there. And she's in love with him. Yeah. And this is, you know, like people mess with each other sometimes, and it is a very interesting situation. Well, and this is the thing too. It's like this is what we do when weird stuff happens. Is we choke. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of deal with the awkwardness of it all. The point is, in order to get this robe. I've got it. And right before he makes whatever that deal is, a car pulls up and says, George, come on home, quick. Your father's had a stroke. Hmm. And he immediately throws the robe at her. Yep. Because he knows, you know, he's not going to take off with the robe and leave her in the situation. He throws the robe at her and then apologizes to her. Yeah. And says, Mary, I've got to go. He doesn't just jump into the car and take no. off. He really does care about her, you know. And she stands up now back in her robe and just there's a great shot of her watching him go. Bro, that's one of the best fucking shots of the movie. Her coming out. And remember, Frank did this a couple times in the film because George comes out when he sees the poison 
in the jar, he rises from below mm-hmm. the camera frame and hear the same thing, Mary coming out of um, the uh, the bush. And there's a real look of concern and care mm-hmm. in her eyes. Like she, cause she probably knows how much George's dad means to him. And so in that moment, you know, but the way they play the music cue here and the look they set up of that shot, it is like beautiful, glorious even. And it's immediately makes you feel like, okay, this is, this is who he's going to be with for the rest of his life. And it's really powerfully laid out that way. Well, and once again, that's kind of a perfect short film because. Oh, great points. Yes. Because we start with him with the luggage. I'm yes. about to leave on my trip. Great point. And we end with the moment where you ain't leaving on your trip. Yeah. And we have, you know, we have the scene with dad where he tells dad he's this great guy. And, right. you know, we have meeting Mary and we, I mean, like, it's all just a perfectly structured vignette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think there are few scenes that go from absolutely wonderfully warm, romantic to just brutal more than, you know, your father's had a stroke at the end of this scene. Yeah, it's really interesting too, because we don't get like a final scene between them. What do you think about that, Steve? You know, in a movie like this, a final scene between them, maybe a bit, you know, you see, you see the beginnings of Jimmy or sorry, not Jimmy, uh, um, uh, George feeling the pressure and feeling the guilt of maybe the beginnings of the idea of him having to take over the bank and loan, maybe a building alone, maybe, you know, his dad says something, maybe uncle Billy has a con, maybe his mom says something like, cause she's conspicuously absent from this entire decision-making process and throughout the whole movie, other than yeah. getting him towards Mary, she really makes no conversations about the building alone, about him taking over the building alone. She seemed quite happy to maybe just step aside and let it play out the way it played out. And so it's very interesting that there's a miss. I feel like there's always been a missing scene here that we could have seen that would have gave us even more power to what we're about to get next in, uh, in the it, building alone. Yeah. It's so funny. I've never felt that way. In oh, fact, really? what I, what I think I'm so impressed with and, and, and was thinking about it as you were talking about it is what, you know, one of the jobs when you're writing and when you're editing is yeah. giving you exactly what is necessary to tell this story and get you in the emotional place you need mm-hmm. to be and no more yeah. like that scene with dad ending with, you know, him, his decision to leave and dad supporting it and him saying you're a pretty great guy. And then dad's dead. You're saying it's a good button for that relationship. You don't exactly need an extra scene. Okay. Well, and, and like, I mean, were you, emotionally moved by dad's had a stroke yeah of course yeah absolutely do you understand what that means in terms of george's character and where we're gonna go sure but i don't understand why george is in the room i don't understand why george is meeting with the board members i don't understand what george is doing there do you know what i'm saying like i don't there's been no nothing established where george was connected to his father in terms of the business right i mean this was a whole thing where he was leaving so i don't know why he's the one in the room other than he's the lead of the movie. Do you know what I'm um, saying? I, well, it's, it's so funny. Cause I think it's all there because there's the scene where, you know, he talks about the fact that he delayed going to college right. and that he's been working at the billion loan. And oh, it's yeah. real obvious True. that dad wishes he would stay. Right. And says, you've got real talent. And then the first line. Okay. So then maybe this is George and not to cut you off, Steve, but maybe this is George as you've been laying the groundwork for throughout the whole episode here, George, once again, sacrificing himself for someone else. Like he doesn't have to be in that room with Billy. Uh, someone else could be in the room with Billy. Billy could be there by himself. But George clearly feels that uh, to represent his father correctly, 
as a la- final duty to his dad. He should sacrifice. He delays his trip. He stays in town to make sure this all gets wrapped up, and he's in the office with Billy. So he didn't have to, but he did. And once again, throwing himself in the water to save a family member. I want the board to know that George gave up his trip to Europe to help straighten things out here these past few months. That is such a perfect expositional line because it tells us everything we want to know. And by the way, I don't know if it's now or later, but at some point we're going to have to talk about Uncle Billy. I mean, for God's sakes, fuck, fuck Grandpa Joe, but Uncle Billy's in the in the ballpark for sure. I mean, the difference with Grandpa Joe, I would say, is he doesn't mean well. Grandpa Joe is just a kind of a bad person, really. Uncle Billy means well. Well, I mean, Uncle Joe, once he gets, Grandpa Joe, rather, once he gets out of the bed, he has some real care and, and affection for his grandson, but. Yeah, but he makes him drink those fizzy lifting drinks. That's true. But Billy loses $8,000. Gloating. Gloating. Uncle Billy, well, and it's very obvious when they say help straighten things out. Yeah, yeah, Is that that business was not actually that well run. And no. uh, and, and if he had if he had left Uncle Billy in charge, there's no building in loan. And not within a week. Uh, no. but, and then it makes you wonder why were people on the board there not willing to fight for his father and why George felt the need to be there because he didn't trust maybe the board to fight against Potter in some subconscious way. Who knows? But one of the fundamental things, and we're going to get into it in this scene is what's the purpose of a business, you know? And there are, you know, and the basic purpose of a business today is that a corporation has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. Yeah. Well, that's the board. You know, yeah. So the the you know the board's looking at are we going to ma- ever make any money off this stupid building and loan? You know? Yeah, yeah, very true. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to get to my real purpose. Wait just a minute now. Wait for what? I claim this institution is not necessary to this town. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion to dissolve this institution and turn its assets and liabilities over to the receiver. Terrible person. Well, okay, he He's is a terrible no person for for. Um, What's going on here between these people and their families, for God's sakes? He is a terrible person. In no way will I ever defend Mr. Potter. He's a horrible, horrible person. It sounds like you're about to, though, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, if you're an investor in a business and the business just continues to barely scrape by, you have to think about what that business is, you know? You know, it's like if I if I had if I had stock in a company, in fact, I've had stock in a company and that company is not doing well. And you like and eventually you're going to sell your stock, you know? Right. Right. Because that's what businesses are. You got, um, you got a little Potter in you, okay? <laughs> Just a little bit of Potter. Just eating me. And what we hear is they talk about Peter Bailey's faith and devotion to the to the organization. And sure. Potter, in a great bit of logic, goes, "I'll go further than that. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building and law. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you." Considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Just shut up, you know? And then again, this is a moment where if he had, if Potter had just shut up, because this, this whole film is full of people gloating at the wrong time. And certainly Potter here saying the stuff that he's saying, it's just a final dig. Clearly he's, you know, still upset about the battle with the Baileys all the time. And taking that shot at uh, George's father is just so unnecessary, but he does it because he feels he's untouchable. And some people feel themselves, and it really bites them in the ass. And if he hadn't said a word, there's no way George would have delivered a speech, stood his ground, and motivated the board members to vote against Potter. So 
He is the architect of his own demise. Potter is in many ways. I mean, um, yeah, Mr. Potter is in many ways. Get confused yeah. with Harry Potter in my mind. So sorry. <laughs> Maybe Harry Potter is a descendant from Mr. Potter. I don't know what, <laughs> where so. James and Lily, you know, came from exactly. I mean, James is kind of a dick. So maybe <laughs> he's a bit of a dick. Um, I, it's funny. I had never thought about it, but you are a hundred percent right. And it brings me back to the mm. thing that Peter, the dad asked him earlier. It's like, you got all the money you need. What is this about? And then yeah. in the conversation with George, you know, he, he says, you know, oh, he just hates everything, particularly us mm-hmm. is that, and this goes, you know, go to, I personally, my personal belief system mm-hmm. is that wealth is fine. And there's yes. a level of wealth that is unnecessary. Like where I go like, well, I don't understand what you're getting after a certain amount of money. If you right. can buy everything you want, why get more money? Right. And I think what you bring up is that for Potter, I don't think it is about money. No. Mo- for most people with money, it's not usually about, especially old money like Potter seems to have. It's not usually about money. you know. And I think sometimes we fall into these traps as, as we look at people with wealth and we want to put normal expectations on them. And the truth is people with wealth don't act normally most of the time because they have no concept of what it's like to scrape by and pay bills and rent and all that kind of stuff in order to survive, to be uh, in essence tied to your job in order to survive. Most people with wealth, it's about status. It's about feeling like you're the biggest person in the room, right? That's what it's always about. When, when they talk about the owners getting together in the NFL, there's all, it's 32 rich dudes in a room and an occasional woman when Georgia was running the Rams. Uh, and it's always about bragging or, you know, uh, trying to be the most important person in the room or the richest person in the room. It's rarely about how much money you have. It's about how much wealth in terms of properties and status you've acquired. You know, I think too, the Baileys are inherent criticism of Mr. Potter's entire value system. Oh, it's an indictment of his value system. Yes. A hundred percent. Correct. Yes. Fact that they continue to exist when they should fail says that something's wrong with Potter. And he's going to say what his value system is right now. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him. God rest his soul. And it's like, no, all you mean is disrespect. No offense. (laughs) He was a man of high ideals, so-called. Yeah, there's the shot. I love the so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. (laughs) And then he picks out a loan that the building loan has put out totally at random that happens to be one of our characters, Ernie. 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 Poor yeah. yeah. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan, but he comes here and we're building him a house worth $5,000. It's like, well, it's called a building and loan. That's yeah. what it's doing. And that's what engages uh, George Bailey. He says, right. it's his friend. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> and then this next line. And this is the, you know, this is the philosophical crux of the difference between the way the Bailey see the world and the way the Potters see the world. Yeah. What does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, where have I heard this bullshit before? Anyway. Uh, I mean, 
This is the, it is literally the debate that we've been having in this country for the time, whole time there's been a country. I just wonder if when, I wonder when people who are like Potter watch It's a Wonderful Life, do they sympathize with Potter or do they see themselves as George Bailey and kind of manipulate someone else to be Potter in their minds? I just, I was always fascinated by this because there's a huge contingent of people in this country who do believe, or in this world, not country, not even to be specific, in this world, who believe the way Potter believes. You know, that it's, oh, if you help people out, then they're just going to get lazy and never work and never show up. And they won't do, you know, they can't work from home. They're lazy sitting around doing nothing and blah, blah, blah. But then they go to church and go, God, forgive me. I love my fellow man. And the hypocrisy of those two, I just, I find that fascinating. I can't make that connect in my mind when I look at it, because I I think, you know, to have such a horrible opinion of human beings yet want to say how we should all, you know, respect our fellow man and love our fellow man and sing Christmas songs about loving our fellow man. I don't know where the disconnect happens. You know, it's just kind of confusing. The first thing I will say before basically entirely agreeing with you (laughs) is there, there is a, um, this isn't just binary. It's like, if you said, well, we're going to, you know, like there's th- debates about um, guaranteed minimum income, right? You know, where it's like, okay, we're going to give everybody a thousand dollars a month. Well, I would go if you gave everyone ten thousand dollars a month. Yeah, then people would maybe stop working. You know, <laughs> like there there is a there is a level where I can side a tiny tiny. Maybe I am a little bit Mr. Potter. Mm. Maybe a little bit. Mm. Now let me completely agree with you. <laughs> I don't know what people see people who have these philosophies think yeah. when they see Mr. Potter. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't really know. And the idea that immigrants and working people aren't busting their asses every day yeah. in order to make ends meet is just pretty nuts. And you know, the, the, I, you know, it's like all the stuff of like, Oh, if we have a minimum wage, then people won't work hard enough. Yeah. We, you know, like that. No, it's people should be able to work. It's funny. I, I, in my plan to, yeah, in my plan to uh, read every book I've ever bought on Audible before <laughs> I buy more books on Audible, yes. I am now on the hardest book that I bought a long time ago, and I am finally, finally listening to it. And that is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Wow. Look so, and it's hard, and it's it's not like pleasure reading at all. But I'll tell you what surprises me is that. Adam Smith spends more time talking about fair wages mm-hmm. and talking about how the ways that working people and farmers and people that, you know, work other people's lands can be abused yes. than I ever would have thought possible. Like the, the, but this is the thing. Adam Smith is the like, Hey, laissez faire guy. He's what the right wing has been using forever. And apparently they didn't read the damn book, wow. you know? So like, I think this is a huge, huge deal. And I think this idea about what working people are. Well, and this is, and the one last thing I'll say mm. is having grown up with some money, you talking about poor people when you've grown up with some money without working really, really hard to talk to some poor people and yeah. working people and hear their stories is messed up. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, and the judgment is, and listen, we're not trying to get into any kind of political debate. It's more a matter of philosophical debate, right? This idea that, well, if you think if you help other people, they're just going to sit around. Human beings are conditioned, especially in this country, because we're we're indoctrinated in this country from birth that having a job 
paying your bills, owning a house, getting married, having children. These are the things that are programmed in your head from like elementary school, even before elementary school on, you're giving these images in your media, in your books, in all these stories, all of that. Even the fucking fairy tales are all about, you know, finding the right woman or finding the right guy or, you know, overcoming evil to achieve certain things. So you have all that conditioned into your brain. And so I don't think, I don't believe that my majority of the people would sit around. Would, would there be some people taking advantage? Yes. But guess what? The rich take advantage. That's what I was going to say. Yep. Yeah. About, about the laws. They have these fake tax. I mean, we just saw the Trump organization had the judgment against him. They, they take advantage of these laws and loopholes and they try to circumvent the system. So why is one side of it okay, but the other side of it isn't? Why are you willing to defend one side over the other? You know, I think both situations are wrong. You know, and so uh, when I look at it, I just go, I don't think, I think, because I think what, um, what, what Bailey says here, what George says here, and, and which we'll get to in just a second is, is the truth, you know, that sometimes people overlook the fact that you wouldn't have any fucking money if people weren't willing to work for you. The second they stop working for you, you'd lose all your money. Bezos would be broke within a year or two if everybody at Amazon said, fuck you, we're not working for you. And nobody went to work for him in the, in the warehouses, on the computer, on the internet, on the website. Nobody took the orders. This guy would be bankrupt within two to three years. Well, of know? course. So, but well, and, it, and it's not just that. And in a moment, I'm going to really go like, you know what? We should let George Bailey explain all this because he does a yes. better job than us. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but now I, I will say it's like it's not just all the people that work for Bezos. It's all the people that buy from Bezos. Yes, that, right. If, if we people, all stop buying from him too, yes. So if we don't have enough money, and that's what George is about to say, if yeah. pe- working people don't have money, they can't buy stuff from the business owners. The right. business owners go out of business. Yes. I love what the, the passion and intensity of Jimmy Stewart. It's like oh, yeah, man. He, when he hears what Potter says, it's it, he's almost not in control of his body as he's just moving forward on him. Yeah. You're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? I want to stop there because this is the same as George saying little George yelling at Potter. Right. It's in like, the same office, by the way. In the yeah, same office. Don't say mean stuff about my dad. That's part one of this. He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. And then this is where he lays it on. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Buddy, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? Do you think that's true? Yes, 100%. 100%. If you make people, if you create a scenario for people to feel respected, appreciated, they'll want to work for you more. They'll want to be there more. They'll do the extra effort. And if you don't, I think people will hate you and talk about you behind your back and hate coming to work and call in sick in critical moments and not give a crap or not do a full good, not do a, a good job at their job, you know, and this ruling by fear, this ruling by um, dangling uh, the fact that you might get fired over your face or over your head rather, or employing others to spy on others, that kind of stuff just is horrible energy to throw into the world. You know, and I think there's a better way to exist in that situation. But, you know, rich people want to constantly, well, not all, but most want to constantly gouge 
workers, pay them as little as possible so they can make as much profit as possible. And it's not a coincidence that, of course, you know, people like Potter in 2022 have made have made more money over the last few years than people in the working class in terms of seeing their profits increase versus wages increasing. And that's unfair. And that's going that's got to stop. And I'm telling you right now, that is going to lead to a revolution in one way or another. People, I mean, study your history. Every empire where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer leads to a revolution, an ugly revolution. And so what you're seeing here in a way is George Bailey delivering a revolutionary speech. You could see him delivering this on a stump in in Bedford Falls somewhere sure. running for mayor or something. Um, by the way, I'll, g- I'll give you a little bit of my learning from Adam Smith sure. is one of the things he talks about, which is exactly what you just said, mm. is that one of the differences between the people who are working the land or the people on a wage is when economic conditions change, the owners can make a ton more money, yeah. but nobody's wages go up. So the owners benefit from changes in the economy, but the workers don't. Yep. Of course. That's, and that is from Adam Smith. You, you said that, what did you say just a minute ago, they, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? I th- that, that line, man, it, it, mm-hmm. again, this is from learning more about how the world works. I think about so many families, immigrant mm-hmm. families, poor families where the parents are working two jobs, busting their asses for the next generation. Yeah. You know, I mean, my parents did that. My parents, my mom taught herself how to be a hairdresser so that she could bring a second income into the house. My dad didn't even want her to do that. He's an old school Latino guy. Yeah. My mom took herself, walked in the snow to these classes because my father, because at the time caught up in his Latino macho bullshit, which we broke him of, wouldn't drive him, drive her to the classes uh, because he thought it was offensive that as a Latino wife, she was trying to make her own money and not rely on her husband's money. And my, my mom, who was made of steel and iron and is still around, uh, walked herself miles to the class wow. to, so she could learn. And that's the thing, you know? And so we had two incomes coming in and oh, and then my dad took, or my mom took a second job and, and that's how we were able to survive. You know, my dad started his own business. My mom took a second job after the hairdresser job. And then eventually we got into a, a good position working our way up the, up the chain. But that's how it is, you know? And so you, you understand that that is. And what happened? My dad passed away from cancer before he could enjoy the fruits of his labor. And so what, what George is saying is absolutely right. My dad was going to retire a year before he died, a year after wow. he died, rather. A year, yeah. The year he died, the next year he was going to retire, we had the plans. They were going to go. They were going to get an RV. They were going to see the United States and see the country, and they were going to try Europe out a couple of times just to see some stuff. And I was going to go with them on one of the trips. So we they had all these plans. And unfortunately, my father worked himself to the bone, caught cancer from working uh, his um, self-employment job as a painter, uh, and caught the mesothelioma and passed away and couldn't enjoy it. You know, And now my mom's a homebody. She doesn't want to go anywhere because right. she was going to go with my dad. She doesn't want to get remarried. So unfortunately, now this is the situation and this is the life, you know? Um, the, the situations are really different, but my dad was going to retire the year before he, year after he died too. Mm. Same thing. And they had all these travel plans and, 
Yeah. Uh, my mom, on the other hand, is not a homebody. She's no. traveling all over the place. Your mom's a spitfire, and I love it. Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. I can't, I, I, I can't say anything better than George Bailey, honestly. Yeah. And then he kind of moves in. It's it's aggressive what he's doing. He's he's thrust forward by yeah. his chest almost. Yeah. You know, like it's almost like his father's spirit comes inside of yep. him and yanks him forward towards Potter. Yeah. Well, and this is this is the thing is that George Bailey might live his life fighting for this penny ante building alone, but George yeah. Bailey's a great man. This is yes, his greatness. Is. This is he could be this amazing thing. I mean, I think he is an amazing thing. I'm not saying he's not. Right. But but he he really could have been one of those things that he dreamt of being his you dad know? said it to him you've yep. got talent son i've seen yeah. it. people were human beings to him but to you a warped frustrated old man they're cattle well in my book he died a much richer man than you'll ever be <laughs> george Bailey liked cows oh well <laughs> <laughs> what's funny to me is the philosophy that is that he has to learn this lesson for himself yeah yeah, yeah. for throughout the whole movie he just said Yes. My father will die a richer man than you will ever be. Yeah. Um, Potter yawns in the midst oh, of this man. speech. Oh, man, it's so dirty. It's so dirty. The yawn, yeah. the big yawn is dirty. <laughs> and what's funny, too, a lot of people have said some pretty terrible things right to Potter's face, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. And George knows that he kind of lost it and he's trying to get it under control. And then on his way out, he has to say one more thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. And that hits Potter. The yeah. look he gives George, like, you son of a bitch. Like, you see him, you know, he's angry. He didn't get the best of him yet again. He didn't get the best. The, the, the Baileys got the best of him yet again in that moment. And so he's yeah. mad about it. Yeah, absolutely they did. Mm-hmm. Um, And George and Billy walk out, and Billy is just thrilled with what george did in there he's loving it and it kind of announces to uh eunice and tilly which which apparently are in they're in the bailey family i think by the way oh are they yeah they're related they're like cousins or something that you know we're going out of business and (laughs) i love that he goes i can get another job i'm only 55 56 i don't know if he put that in as a joke or if that's supposed to be real like back then you could work and get a job at 55 oh i problem I, I think know. it's I think it's totally a joke. I think it's to, I think it's part of Billy's delusion. Yeah. Um and by the way, you see this uh Raven, which you see several times oh, in yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. So that remember we were talking about all the threads of great movies and things like that? Right. That is Jim the Raven. The uh the animal trainer is a very famous animal trainer. There's a whole bunch of animals in this movie, actually. Oh wow. Jim was his prized animal, incredibly right. well-trained raven. That raven is in You Can't Take It With You, and I think several other um, Frank Capra movies. He's also the raven in The Wizard of Oz. I believe he's in in Gone with the Wind. That raven is in, like, dozens of great films. Holy shit. Yep. George, they voted Potter down. They want to keep it going. And then they say they got one condition. They've appointed George here as executive secretary to take his father's place. And George is like, yep, Uncle Billy's supposed to take this gig. He really is like... No, you know, and I, I love that they say you can keep him on. That's all right. <laughs> I think every everyone knows that Uncle Billy's basically a charity case, you know. Yeah, right. 
Well, Dr. Kamala, let's get this thing straight. I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy here. He's your man. And he walks forward. He's out the door and he walks into this close-up, which is a technique that Capra uses a lot. And then we hear... But George, they'll vote with Potter otherwise. Oh, the sound cue is great here, too. Dun-dun! Like, yeah. man, you're fucked. You're fucked, guy. You gotta well, go back. Well, and we talked about you know, these being like perfect vignettes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. We yeah. know. Moves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we get, we get right to, we know what decision he's going to make. We don't have to see right. him make the decision. Just him walking in the close-up and they'll vote with Potter. We know. We understand. Yeah. And at this moment, as George Bailey is now, we know, condemned to run this Penny Annie building and loan when all he wants to do is get the hell out of town. Yeah. I think it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on Facebook or on Twitter, where it's Cine underscore files on Instagram, where it's the Cinephiles podcast. If you feel like giving the Cinephiles a holiday present, Ooh. perhaps a review on Apple Podcasts yes. would be something that you could do out of the goodness of your heart. Or maybe just like people rally together to support George Bailey, you could rally together to support the cinephiles by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can pick a movie that we're going to review, listen to our cinephile shorts, watch our new watch alongs or participate in our new Patreon only Q and A's yeah. all sorts of great holiday cheer happening on the cinephiles, Patreon site. You can uh, buy or stream. It's a wonderful life along with every mother movie we've ever reviewed at cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and of course, Enterprise Incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at the Roka says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. Uh, my own YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roka says, where we just crossed 25,000 subscribers. So thank you all who have subscribed to it. And if you haven't, please head on over there for uh, to subscribe to the channel and get us going to 30,000 subscribers and my other podcasts. The uh, top 10, the Geek Buddies, and the Hot Mike that are out there for you to enjoy. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back to conclude our exploration of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life next week on The Cinephiles. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.